So we're starting a new series today on the names of God. We're going to take this for the next couple of months, and we're starting with the one that is one most prevalent for most of us, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Now, the word Jehovah is never found in the pages of the Hebrew Old Testament. You won't find it. Instead, what you'll find is what you find in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when Moses says, uh, who shall I say sent me? God answers with four letters. And I want you to take a note and just get you a pen, right? If, even if you're not used to doing that, then you'll find one in the pew rack ahead of you. This is important. I want you to have this so you can take it home with you and you don't get fooled by some of the cults that are out there that want to distract you this way. There are four letters that God uses to describe himself. Y-H-W-H. They even have a special designation for when you find those four letters together in the description of God. You ready for it? The sacred tetragrammaton. Aren't you glad you came to church, huh? It means holy four letters, nothing more than that. Well, what does it mean? It's the name that God uses to describe himself. And then he applies that word to other descriptors, adjectives, if you will, to describe what it means to be the God of whatever. So today we're taking up the God who provides. And why are we doing this? Because we believe that names matter. Names matter. Ask anybody who has ever been called by their middle name. What does it mean when you hear your middle name? That you're in trouble, right? You've heard that before. But other names, I want to stretch this context, they tell us something else. My friend Arnold's going to bring a picture on the screen of a, of a, of a car. Everybody say, ooh. Oh, you can do better than that. That's really, get, do one more time, ooh. Yeah, that's pretty sad. This is a 1954 Ferrari Mondial. It is a Ferrari, all right? There were not very many of these made. I don't remember the exact number, but this is a collector's car, and it was wrecked a couple of years ago. Now I'm going to show you what it should look like. Go to that next picture, will you? Everybody go, ah. Yeah, that's much better. I will tell you that both of these vehicles sold last month. Both of them sold at a fancy car show in the San Francisco area uh, at, a, at a fancy car show last month. One of them sold for $1.8 million. And it was the first one. Go back to that again, Arnold. This car sold without an engine, without a transmission, just the frame that you see for $1.8 million. The other one sold for five and a half. Why is this so significant? Because the name on it, right? We know that if you take the time and, and spend the money and the energy and you pour another $2 million into the 1.8 that you already did, then you still have another $2 million you can recoup from it. Why? Because names matter. Names matter. And when we come to the moment when we say the name God shows for himself, Yahweh, when it is applied to Jireh, then it means something powerful. Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. The passage my friend Mark read so well a minute ago is in Exodus 15. And if you're one who has walked along with me, then you know we just covered this not long ago in Exodus 14. In Exodus 14, we find the Red Sea being divided. 
You would think that the people would have understood something about God's provision. Well, they, like us, live in a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately kind of society. I want you to see it in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness of Shur. Now let's pause here for just a second. Let's be clear. We're not talking about a forest wilderness, all right? I want you to think Monahan sand dunes, all right? Most of you have probably been there just like mine, my, me and my family have. It's not exactly a place you want to camp, is it? But it is a place that we would regard as equivalent to the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and they found no water. Here's the problem. People are thirsty. Verse 23, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, they called it Marah. Marah is a word that means bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Here we have an overwhelming problem and a deep valley. When we find our friends, the Israelites, I want you to go back to verse 22 and underline something for me. They went three days. Would you just underline three days? It had been three days since God had delivered them, since he had provided them a highway through the sea to deliver them from Pharaoh's army. Three days. Oh, my goodness, how quickly things change. Three days, friends. Their fickleness had caused them to miss out on it. But what was it that caused them to, to grow so fickle? The pain of their current circumstances. Let's be clear, friends. The shadows of our pain can cause us to doubt God's provision. When the shadows of what we feel, especially painful feelings, when they come upon us, we are reminded that we are indeed human. Now, the problem they had was no water. Maybe that's not your problem. After all, most of us live in a place where indoor plumbing is just a fact of life. We walk over, we turn the faucet, we expect water. Not only water, but clean water. Maybe your problem isn't that. Maybe it's no money. Maybe it's no health. Maybe it's family members that are struggling. The shadows of our pain can cause us to doubt God's provision. And doubt can lead us to what I'm calling the valley of the unknown. Now I want to tell you, friends, this is not a geographical statement. There is no valley specific that is a place called valley of the unknown, at least not that I know of. But I want us to see this valley because it is one that all of us will find ourselves to. You see, they just had this massive, incredible victory. What a moment God had given them. They had just walked through that. And yet now, in the moment when they're struggling, they walked into a valley, a valley of the unknown where you don't know what's around the corner. You ever been there? Hmm. I dare say you have, just like I have. It's not a comfortable place to visit, and it's not a place that we can necessarily aspire to go to. Most of us would rather be on the mountaintop. 
So why is it that God allows this at all? Hold on to that question. We'll come back to it. The valley, it's filled with my fear. Fear of what we don't know. Fear maybe even of what we do know. It's a shadowy place that causes our knees to wobble and our hearts to go faint. It causes us to shrink back and to doubt God's very existence. Speaking of doubt, the valley is not only filled with fears, it's filled with my doubts. Doubts about who God is. Doubts about who I am. Will I make it through this valley? Will I survive this moment? Will my family be okay? Will my faith be enough? Is God really God? Is he really good? Lastly, the valley is unavoidable. Oh, friends, how many times have we seen the valley ahead of us and looked for a way around it? And yet now I want to go back to the question I asked a minute ago. What do we do in the moment when we're in the valley? What is it that God does for us in that moment that he hasn't, can't, won't do on the mountaintop? Let me tell you, friends, I've learned more about God in the valley than I ever did on the mountaintop. On the mountaintop, I don't have to trust him. I can see. On the mountaintop, I know what's ahead. I've got a perspective that grants me a long latitude to see what's around me. But in the valley, in the valley, I can only see a little bit, and I have to trust that he's leading me where he wants me to go. How then do I How then do I take the next step to find my way out of this valley? Moses gave us an example worth imitating. You see it there in verse 25. It's just the first few words. And Moses cried out to the Lord. In other words, rather than sitting down for a strategy session, rather than reading a self-help book or listening to a podcast, he fell to his knees and ask God for wisdom. Here we go, my friends. Finding my way out of the valley starts here. On my knees. There's three things that I want to encourage you to pray. These prayers are not a hamburger helper box mix that will get you out of the valley right away, but they will absolutely help you set your feet in order that you might continue on in the walk that God has given you. Here's the first one. Praying confidently that our God is sovereign. Our God is sovereign. What does that mean? It means he's in charge of everything. Everything is under his reach. Everything is under his power. All things are under his authority. And because of that, I can rest even in the valley. Here's a second piece. Praying boldly because God invited me to do so. In Hebrews 10, the word of the Lord says, let us come boldly before the throne of grace. Indeed, coming boldly means coming because God invited me to. I'm not an unwelcome intruder. I'm his child coming to ask for his help. He wants to lead me through this valley. If only I'm willing to let him. The third piece Waiting for God's deliverance means trusting God's timing. Now, let's just say that we go from here. 
together, and we go out to a restaurant. And I invite you. You have volunteered to pay for my lunch for whatever reason, and you have said, I will pay for your lunch if I can choose it, Darren. Great. I'm good for that. And I sit there with you, and I listen as you order liver and asparagus for me. Just ruined your lunch, didn't I? Now, could it be that this is the provision you've given me, but it's not the provision I want? Could it be? Could it be that trusting God in that moment means taking what he's given me, even if it's not what I would choose? I want to encourage you, friends. Take these three pieces and store them away, for we will know what to do when the valley comes for us. Here's what I mean. If God created us, and Psalm 139 says he created us wonderfully and masterfully, if he knows us by name, Isaiah 43 says he knows every part of us, including our name. If we are the apple of his eye, Ecclesiastes says that. If we are his delight, Isaiah 42 says that then why wouldn't he want to provide for us? Why wouldn't he? Let's be clear, friends. Moses hadn't any sooner prayed than God answered it. And that's where I want us to conclude. I know we're on time, over time, so just hang in there with me. I promise we're going fast. God's provision is already made. Let me say that one more time because I think somebody here needs to hear it. God's provision is already made. See it in verse 25. And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Before it was needed, God grew that tree. Get this now. God's provision, his sovereignty, his wisdom looked ahead down through the passages of time and it said, eventually, in the valley of Shur, there's going to be a moment when Moses is going to need this log to throw in to make the water sweet. I'm going to build this tree now so that it's ready then. Before it was needed, God grew that tree. This is what he does. Go with me on this journey for a moment. Saul had an unnamed servant, King Saul had an unnamed servant in 1 Samuel 9 who said, hey, Saul, why don't you go down in here and meet the prophet Samuel? After all, he's asked for that meeting. It couldn't hurt. We don't know who that person was, but we know that it's because of them. Saul became King Saul. In 2 Kings 11, an unnamed nurse preserved the life of Joash for six years. Joash grew up to become one of Judah's greatest kings. In John chapter 6, an unnamed boy brought his sack lunch to Jesus. Jesus used it to feed 5,000 people. In Acts 23, Paul's nephew, who we don't know who he is and he only appears then, exposed a plot against Paul's life. Now imagine what we would have in the New Testament if Paul had been killed in Acts 23. 
Not much. And these are just the people. Consider this. In Luke 19, God provided the trees Zacchaeus would need to climb up and see Jesus. In 1 Samuel, God provided the rocks David used to kill Goliath. God provided the rain to float Noah's ark. Let's be clear. Our God provides exactly what he needs, and he provides it in advance. Before it was needed, God already has provided it. Now here's a question that really underscores all of it. What happens when God's provision isn't what I want? It's a common problem and one that we struggle with. I want to give you five things, and we're going to go fast, I promise. Five things and we'll be done about what to do when what God is providing you with isn't what you want. These things are foundational questions, things that you can anchor yourself to, to set your feet firmly in that valley so that you can walk yourself out of it led by the hand of God. These things, friends, these things will help you know God's goodness in the midst of it. These five questions. One, what do I believe about God? Is he a good and loving God or a cruel and vindictive one? He's a good and loving God, then he'll want to provide for me. He'll want to lead me through. He'll want to take me to the next step. If he's a cruel and vindictive one, then he's giving me what I deserve, and I should only expect more of the same. Oh, friends, I think you know which one I believe. I believe he's good. I believe he longs to give us goodness. I believe his goodness is the essence of his being, and I believe that he wants to show us that. Here's the second thing. Has God already provided my answer, and I'm missing it for lack of trust in him? Let's go back to the liver and asparagus, all right? Some of you were hoping I'd forgotten that, and I don't blame you. My dad, every year when I was growing up, he would fry liver in our home and funkify the whole house for a week and would require of me to sit down at the table with him because nobody else would eat it and try it annually just to see if my tastes had changed. One of the greatest liberties I got when I graduated from high school and left my parents' home was not to have to have liver anymore. Sometimes the provision that God has given me is like liver. I don't want it. But if I'm willing to take it, then maybe God will teach me something with it. I want you to embrace this because there are times when my desires blind me, blind me to what God has already given me. They cause me to miss him altogether simply because it's not what I want. Has God already provided my answer and I'm missing it because it's not what I want? The third question, and this one may be the most difficult of all to answer, what do I believe about myself? If I believe I'm God's child, if I believe I'm fully loved, 
fully desired, chosen, adopted, redeemed, sanctified, and forgiven, then I will believe that God's goodness is meant for me. On the other hand, if I believe that I'm wicked, that I'm evil, that I deserve punishment, and that I deserve God's wrath, then finding God's goodness is going to be even more difficult. Oh, friends, if you want to know who you really are in Christ, then I want you to write down a note to yourself to read Ephesians 3, 1 to 14. I'm sorry, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. The longest sentence in the Bible. In Greek, it's all one. And I think it is because Paul got so excited he didn't know where to stop. In it, you'll see that he says, you are fully loved. You are chosen. You're adopted. You're forgiven. You're redeemed. You have a bright and glorious future and a forgiven and redeemed past. This, friends, is who you are. What do you believe about yourself? The fourth question, what do I believe about God's plan? If I'm willing to trust God's plan, am I willing to do so even if it doesn't lead me to where I want to go? I don't want to say this half-heartedly, and I didn't say it to the first service, but I feel compelled to share it with you now. There are a great many people that I talk to about coming to serve with us in Midland. And some of them have said to me, maybe this sounds familiar to you too, I don't want to live in Midland. And then they add to it. And because I don't want to live in Midland, God can't call me there. Oh, hoot. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. God is limited by your preferences. God's will, God's plan is limited by what you want. Come on, man. For a few of them, I've taken time to have that conversation. To no avail, of course, but maybe it'll help the next guy. What do I believe about God's plan? Does he have to meet my preferences? Or is he God and can do it his way? Finally, can I trust his provision? And if I can, will I? If I believe that God is good, if I believe that he's provided for me in the past, has plans for my future, if I believe that I am his child and he wants to do things that are good for me, if I believe his plan is trustworthy, then I can trust him, if I will. Most of the time, trusting God is an act of the will as much as it is an act of faith. Now, friends, we're at the end. I want to ask you, what will you do with this? Now, I said something a minute ago. If you're in Christ, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 applies to you. Maybe you're not. Maybe you've never encountered the living Christ. Maybe you've never called on him like Moses did. Maybe you've walked the valley and you're still there. Can I offer you some hope today? Jesus Christ died for your sins and for mine. He came to give you new life. He longs for you to receive that gift, but you have to receive it. He won't force it on you. If you've never received that gift, then today is your day. In just a minute, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. You come down and talk with me, and we will help you find that. 
Maybe you've already done that and you've never done anything about it. In the first service, we baptized my friend Brady. He's 10 years old. And what a great kid. I'm so excited about Brady's future. It's the first step of Christian obedience. If you've never done that, then come down and talk to me about that. We'll be glad to help you. Maybe you need to come to this altar, spend some time asking God to lead you through the valley of the unknown. Today is your day. What will you do with what God has spoken to you? Pray with me, won't you? Now, Lord, we have heard from you a word that is maybe a little hard to hear. Not hard in the sense that we don't want that, but maybe, Lord, it's that we're afraid. I pray, Lord, for those who are fearful. I know that fear, Lord, and it's one that stalks all of us. But we believe you're good and that you really do call us and that you really do want us and that we really are loved. So let us respond to you today that way, Lord. Will you do your work in this invitation time? I pray for those who need to come down here, Lord. Maybe they don't want to. And they're telling you right now all the reasons they can't. I pray you'd break through all that and draw them down here anyway. Do your work here now in this invitation time, Lord. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.